Lewis loved the old cosmos, the old geocentric cosmology, because it was beautiful and because it encouraged a different set of metaphorical interpretations, because it was not so mechanistic as the, as the current one. That's one of the reasons for retaining it, that it frees us from being imprisoned by our own particular model. And our own model of the cosmos will one day be superseded by new scientific discoveries. You know, in 500 years' time, people will look back at the 21st century and say, how old-fashioned were they? They still believed in the Einsteinian cosmos. It's very difficult for us to imagine ourselves forward into that situation, but it will almost certainly happen. And so what we think of now as, you know, the ultimate, the, the final word in interpreting the universe will very soon be out of date. And by retaining an awareness of something that was 500 years old, that is 500 years old, Lewis reminds us, he, he insists on retaining a, a due humility and provisionality about our model of the cosmos. Cosmology comes from a Greek root meaning to structure, to arrange, to embellish, to organize. Cosmology comes from the same root as our word cosmetics. When you apply cosmetics to your face, you are arranging, you're bringing out the pattern and structure of your features. Cosmologists bring out the structure and pattern of the universe, as they believe it to be, and medieval Cosmologists believed it to be arranged geocentrically, not heliocentrically. In the discarded image, C.S. Lewis encourages his readers to take a stroll under the sky at night, looking up at the night sky as if they were living in the time of the geocentric cosmological model. Looking up at the heavens now... Lewis argues, is a very different experience from what it was back then in the Middle Ages. Now we sense we're looking up into a trackless vacuity, pitch black and dead cold. Back in medieval times, we would have felt as if we were looking into a vast lighted concavity. In the nearest part of the sky, our eyes would have seen, or rather seen through, the transparent sphere in which the planet Luna revolves the moon, then the larger sphere of Mercury, then the still larger one of Venus, and so on, through the spheres of the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, each sphere rotating more rapidly than the last, and each one exerting a peculiar influence upon mundane people and events, and even upon the metals in Earth's crust. Beyond Saturn's sphere, we would have seen the heaven of the fixed stars, the stellatum, and beyond that, the primum mobile, the sphere which conveys movement to all the other lower spheres. Further than the primum mobile, we would not have been able to see, for that would have taken our sight outside the created order altogether into the very home of God. One of God's titles was the unmoved mover, because God moved the primum mobile by being loved, 
by being loved, not by loving, but by being the supremely desirable object. It's in this sense, Lewis says, that we should understand the closing line, that immortal line of Dante's divine comedy, the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And one of Lewis's interest in this, one of the reasons for Lewis's interest in this old cosmology was that writers like Dante and Chaucer and many others everywhere presuppose this geocentric model of the cosmos. It provides the background to so much medieval literature. And if we don't understand it, we can't understand the literature of that period. To Lewis, this ceaseless dance of singing spheres around the home of God represented the revelry of insatiable love. He says this, We are watching the activity of creatures whose experience we can only lamely compare to that of one in the act of drinking, his thirst delighted yet not quenched. For in them the highest of faculties is always exercised without impediment on the noblest object, without satiety, since they can never completely make his perfection their own, yet never frustrated, since at every moment they approximate to him in the fullest measure of which their nature is capable. Run your mind up, heaven by heaven, to him who is really the centre, to your senses the circumference of all, the quarry whom all these untiring huntsmen pursue, the candle to whom all these moths move, yet are not burned. The picture is nothing if not religious. But religious in what way? Lewis was conscious that this picture of the universe, in which God is no, not so much the lover as the beloved, and humanity is peripheral, might be thought incompatible with the Christian picture, in which God proactively seeks out the lost sheep, who is the centre of divine concern. However, Lewis reckoned there to be no absolute contradiction between the two pictures, because the love of the spheres for God exhibits the perfect natural order of the uncorrupted translunary realm, the realm above the sphere of the moon, while God's searching love for humanity represents the action of divine grace toward fallen sublunary creatures. And Lewis makes no effort to hide the pleasure he derives from this view of the cosmos. He remarks that the human imagination has seldom entertained an object so sublimely ordered. The medieval universe, he says, was tingling with anthropomorphic life, dancing, ceremonial, a festival, not a machine. Its tingling quality is especially worth noting because Lewis is here drawing on his knowledge of Old English, of Anglo-Saxon. He writes to his father in 1922, Anglo-Saxon gives the impression of parodied English badly spelt, thus Tingle for a star, T-I-N-G-U-L. Tingle for a star. Think of twinkle, twinkle, little star. And almost invariably when the word tingle, T-I-N-G-L-E, appears in Lewis's subsequent works, it comes loaded with special significance. For instance, tingling sounds are heard in Ransom's rooms on the night the planets descend in that hideous strength. And in the voyage of the dawn treader, when Lucy lays her hand on the book of spells 
in the house of Coriarkin, the fallen star. Her fingers tingled when she touched it, as if it were full of electricity. As these quotations from his fiction indicate, Lewis's delight in this old picture of the heavens wasn't confined to his professional academic life as a literary critic and literary historian. He also had a much more personal and imaginative investment in it. He told one of his friends that he liked the whole planetary idea as a mythology. And in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he reports that at the age of 10, the idea of other planets exercised upon me then a peculiar heady attraction, a coarse curiosity, quite different from his romantic interest in joy. And he adds that my own planetary romances have been not so much the gratification of that fierce curiosity as its exorcism. The exorcism, he says, worked by reconciling it with or subjecting it to the other, the more elusive and genuinely imaginative impulse. And those planetary romances that he refers to there are Out of the Silent Planet, in which the hero, Ransom, goes to Mars, Perilandra, in which Ransom goes to Venus, and That Hideous Strength, in which Ransom stays on Earth but acts as a bridge, across which the planetary intelligences pass as they come down to Earth to bring about the denouement of the whole story. And in this trilogy, Lewis gives the planets his own new names, as follows. He makes the moon into Sulva, Mercury into Viritrilbia, Venus becomes Perilandra, the sun is called Arbol, Mars becomes Malacandra, Jupiter is known as Glund, and Saturn is renamed Lurga. These, and all the other heavenly bodies, overwhelm Ransom with their beauty, as he floats among them at the beginning of the first book during his journey to Mars. We, we read this. The stars, thick as daisies on an uncut lawn, reigned perpetually with no cloud, no moon, no sunrise to dispute their sway. There were planets of unbelievable majesty and constellations undreamed of. There were celestial sapphires, rubies, emeralds, and pinpricks of burning gold. And as Ransom marvels at this wonderful sight, he becomes aware that there is a, a spiritual cause for his progressive lightening and exaltation of heart. Here's a marvellous passage. A nightmare, long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science, was falling off him. Ransom had read of space. At the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the black, cold vacuity, the utter deadness which was supposed to separate the worlds. He had not known how much it affected him till now, now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam. He could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from my every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise, since out of this ocean the worlds and all their life had come? He had thought it barren. He saw now that it was the womb of worlds, whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly even upon the earth with so many eyes, and here with how many more? No, space was the wrong name. 
older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens, the heavens which declared the glory, the happy climes that lie where day never shuts his eye up in the broad fields of the sky. He quoted Milton's words to himself lovingly at this time and often. It's significant that Ransom should quote from Milton, for John Milton was not just one of those older thinkers who understood space as the heavens, the heavens which declared the glory, Psalm 19, Lewis's favourite psalm, but Milton was also the first writer to use the word space in the modern sense. It's a 17th century word, space. You could not have looked up into space before the time of Copernicus. That word was not available to you. But Milton straddled the old and the new views of the cosmos. He marked the transition from the pre-Copernican to the post-Copernican, from the old enchanted model of the cosmos to the new relatively disenchanted and mechanistic view of the cosmos. The Ransom Trilogy is in large part an attempt to raise some question marks about the value of the new cosmos and to rehabilitate the traditional conception that goes back to time immemorial. Note that I call it the Ransom Trilogy, not the Space Trilogy. Space is the wrong word, Ransom learns. It's a mistake for people to call it the, Rans the, the Space Trilogy, and Lewis never did so, as far as I'm aware. And in Lewis's poetry, as well as in his fiction, the celestial bodies, as understood by the pre-Copernican mindset, receive a very frequent treatment. One notable example is an alliterative poem of 122 lines entitled simply The Planets. There are many others, including The Turn of the Tide, a complex poem about the birth of Christ, in which not just the planets, but several of the houses of the zodiac play a significant role. Other short poems by Lewis that make use of this sort of, of, this sort of imagery include The Star Bath, Hesperus, Science Fiction Cradle Song, My Heart is Empty, The Meteorite, and Prelude to Space. His narrative poems show the same level of interest in this imagery. For example, The Nameless Isle. My love's looking is long dimness and star's influence. And his other narrative poem, Dimer. Between two clouds appeared one star, then his mood changed. But the subject's pervasive, for Lewis's whole imaginative outlook was enamoured of this medieval or Ptolemaic or Aristotelian or pre-Copernican view of the heavens. And in reading Lewis's poetry, we need to be alive to the significance of even so small a word as air. Lewis comments in the discarded image that the planetary influences don't work upon us directly, but by first modifying the air of Earth's atmosphere. So if you went to a medieval doctor with a, an undiagnosed health problem, and your doctor couldn't attribute it to anything very specific, he would say, it's the influence which is at present in the air. And if you were an Italian doctor, he would say, the influenza that is currently in the air. The medical profession has retained that word influenza, or flu as we now call it, ever since. 
And influenza works by influencing the air of Earth's atmosphere. So when, in his poem, The Small Man Orders His Wedding, Lewis writes a seemingly innocent phrase such as, the air burns with incense, we should be aware that he means more by it than at first might appear. The air is heavy with incense, not actually because there's literal incense in the room, but because the dynasts seven incline from heaven. The planets are irradiating their influence, singing their silent song, bringing joy to this newly married couple. But despite Lewis's imaginative and academic pleasure in this old cosmology, he recognises that it had a serious defect. He says, quite frankly, in the discarded image, it was not true. Nicholas Copernicus, the Polish astronomer, had exposed its untruth in the mid-16th century with his epoch-making work on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres. There were not seven planets, and they did not go round Earth. The Sun, rather, was the centre, and it was orbited by six planets, Mercury, Venus, the Earth, with its own moon, Luna, then Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. By the time Lewis wrote his planet's poem, astronomers had added to the list three further celestial bodies, Uranus, discovered in 1781, Neptune, discovered in 1845, and Pluto, discovered in 1930. Lewis seemed to ignore these developments, seemed to fixate upon the old cosmos. Why? Given that the Ptolemaic picture of the cosmos had been shown to be inaccurate, what possible reason could there be for Lewis to immerse himself, himself so wholeheartedly within this discarded image? Well, if he had lived long enough to witness the relegation of Pluto to the status of a dwarf planet, as happened in 2006, I think Lewis would have been quietly pleased and would have pointed to that as a reason for his own interest in the old cosmos. He would have taken this relegation of Pluto as confirmation of his view that a scientific fact is not necessarily the immutable universal truth that it is popularly believed to be. Facts of that kind, as the philosopher Alastair MacIntyre has jokingly pointed out, were an invention of the 17th century. The glory of science is to progress as new facts are discovered to be true. But such progress means that factual truth of that kind is actually a rather provisional human construct, dependent upon a particular historical context and always open to correction as new facts are discovered and fresh scientific paradigms are developed. Which is why the wise person doesn't think only in the category of factual truth. The category of beauty is also worth thinking in. And it was because he thought it beautiful, and indeed good, that Lewis so reveled in the pre-Copernican cosmos. Lewis admits that from a purely aesthetic point of view, the procession of the gods round the sky has to him a spontaneous appeal greater than that of Christianity. Just as his imaginative preference was not only for Norse, but also for Irish and Greek mythologies over the poetry of his believed religion, namely Christianity. 
Following his Christian conversion, Lewis naturally considered pagan religions to be less true than Christianity. But regarding them without reference to questions of truth, he felt that they actually possessed a, a superior beauty. Beauty and truth could be distinguished from each other, and indeed ought to be distinguished from each other. One of the reasons that Lewis so objected to the school of literary criticism associated with F.R. Leavis was that he thought it contained no notion of the specifically literary good. All literature had to be judged according to how well it reflected Leavis's idea of what was good simply. However, in Lewis's view, this was small-minded. One could, for example, quite happily enjoy the work of D.H. Lawrence for the artistry with which it captured various sensations, even if you thought it morally muddled or even pernicious. So with cosmology. It could be approached from an aesthetic perspective, regardless of whether it was actually true or whether it would do you any good. The Ptolemaic cosmos might not satisfy your appetite for solid, reliable, useful, grad-grindian fact, but that was no reason for not tasting it at all. It might satisfy other appetites. And Lewis found that it did indeed slake his thirst for certain pleasures of form and pattern. He enjoyed it because it raised formal regularity to the level of universal comprehensiveness. Because it everywhere deployed the principle of idem in alio, the same in the other, and because it consisted of a perfectly graded hierarchy in which small and great were equally at home. But a much more substantial reason for Lewis's love of the Ptolemaic cosmos, despite its factual inadequacy, has to do with some of his most deeply held religious beliefs. As a boy, Lewis had been told by his schoolmasters that Christianity was 100% correct and every other religion was 100% wrong. And he found this statement incredible. Rather than bolstering the Christian claim, this statement undermined it as far as Lewis was concerned, and he abandoned his childhood faith, he said, largely under the influence of classical education. And it was to this experience that he owed his firm conviction that the only possible basis for Christian apologetics is a proper respect for paganism. Lewis, Lewis's religion wasn't a upus tree, in whose shadow nothing else could grow. If paganism could be shown to have something in common with Christianity, Lewis concluded so much the better for paganism, not so much the worse for Christianity. Lewis didn't want merely to instrumentalise paganism, like the ancient Hebrews who plundered the spoils of the Egyptians. Rather, like St Paul, quoting pagan poems about Zeus in Act 17, Lewis wanted to respect and redeem and accommodate paganism within a new, larger worldview, even though it might be superficially at odds with his faith. And if he was prepared to adopt such an inclusive stance with respect to pagan divinities, it's to be expected that he would be all the more inclusive with respect to a cosmology that had once been considered fully consonant with Christianity. For it must be emphasised that this pre-Copernican model of the cosmos was a Christian model, despite its acceptance of astrological 
influence. For as Lewis points out in English literature in the 16th century, astrology and astronomy weren't really distinguishable until the Copernican Revolution. And no Christian theologian before that time denied the general theory of planetary influences or the significance of constellation. The planets obviously weren't to be worshipped and their influences were not to be regarded as determinative, overruling your free will and your responsibility before God. And the lucrative and politically undesirable practice of astrologically grounded predictions was also to be avoided. But within these parameters, the Christian church was quite content to sanction what we would now call astrology. After all, the Bible itself appeared to support the belief that there were seven planets and that they possessed influences. The author of the book of Judges in the Old Testament, for instance, chapter 5, verse 20, records, They fought from heaven, the stars in their courses fought against Sisera. And Lewis alludes to this verse in Out of the Silent Planet, the stars in their courses were fighting against Weston, he says. The author of the book of Job, as translated in the King James Version of the Bible, mentions the sweet influences of Pleiades. Job 38.31. Lewis glances at this verse in his poem My Heart is Empty, with its reference to the heaven shedding sweet influence still on earth. And throughout the Bible, the stars are seen as signs, most notably at Bethlehem, of course, signifying the birth of Christ in Matthew's Gospel, and sometimes as, as a celestial court or angelic choir. Christ himself is shown in the book of Revelation holding the seven stars, that is, the seven wandering stars, the planets, in his right hand. A vision that Austin Farrer, Lewis's close friend and an expert in apocalyptic imagery, understood to be a portrayal of Christ's lordship over time. For it's after these seven planets that the weekdays are named. Saturn gives Saturday its name, the sun Sundays, the moon Mondays, and so on. Now, following the Copernican Revolution, astronomy and astrology gradually became more and more distinct. Astronomy prospered and became respectable, while astrology fell on hard times and devolved into superstitious nonsense. Astronomy is now a very respectable pursuit for serious-minded academics. Astrology, in sharp contrast, has become the label of a subject that is generally thought to deserve no serious consideration. Academics are apt to dismiss astrology as foolish superstition, or at best, trivial entertainment. And academics who are Christians may also regard it as potentially or actually dangerous to spiritual health, recalling only the scriptural condemnations of astrological practice, and not bearing in mind that there is also in the Bible, as there once was in the church, a much more positive view of it. Astrology is therefore now a very dangerous word. It connotes all sorts of things that the academic and the Christian mainstream find ridiculous or objectionable. But to Lewis, as a scholar of the 16th century, it would have meant something very different. And he wasn't content to be so dismissive or condemnatory. He wasn't prepared to write off a whole view of the cosmos, as his schoolmasters had written off paganism, 
simply because it had been shown to be factually inadequate. Ideas could be entertained for their beauty, not just their truth. And in 1935, he declared his hand with the publication of that poem, which I've mentioned already, The Planets. It appeared as part of a very learned article on medieval alliterative poetic meter, of which it is an example, and Lewis introduced the poem with these words. In order to avoid misunderstanding, I must say that the subject of the following poem was not chosen under the influence of any antiquarian fancy that a medieval meter demanded medieval matter, but because the characters of the planets as conceived by medieval astrology, seem to me to have a permanent value as spiritual symbols, which is especially worthwhile in our own generation. Of Saturn we know more than enough, but who does not need to be reminded of Jove? Jupiter. Lewis here makes some very high claims on behalf of the medieval planets. The planets aren't just a historical curiosity, fit for pre-scientific medieval people. No, they have a permanent value as spiritual symbols, and indeed they are especially worthwhile in our own generation, Lewis says. Lewis's generation was the generation that went through the First World War. Three quarters of a million British servicemen were killed in those years. Lewis himself had been a teenage officer in that war and was very ne nearly killed during the spring offensive of 1918. That's why he says of Saturn we know more than enough, because Saturn was associated symbolically with death, disaster, pestilence, treachery and all bad things. And Lewis would sometimes describe the culture of the 1920s and 30s as Saturnocentric, fixated upon Saturnine qualities of death and disaster. Much of the pessimism and cynicism of those decades immediately following the Great War was attributable very much to that trauma that everyone had been through. It was very natural and understandable. But it was a historical accident as far as Lewis was concerned. It wasn't an eternal truth about the nature of the universe. And a much better way of symbolising the heart of spiritual reality was through the symbolism of Jove, Jupiter. Who does not need to be reminded of Jove? Jove, Jupiter, Zeus, the king. Sovereign, tranquil, festive, magnanimous. Those are Jupiter's qualities. And it was when Lewis came to write the Narnia Chronicles that his interest in medieval cosmology reached its high point, I believe. In the Narnia Septet, I want to argue, Lewis used these seven spiritual symbols as his imaginative blueprint, taking one planet per book and turning its qualities into the pervasive atmosphere suffusing each story. For instance, the jovial atmosphere in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and the Saturnine influence in The Last Battle. But that is a whole other topic and not one I can get into now at the end of this lecture. I, I hope I've said enough in this talk to show that Lewis's interest in medieval cosmology was lifelong and deep and that he was both alert to its literary possibilities and alive to its spiritual significance. For the heavens are telling the glory of God. Music